Challenges of the Therapeutic Relationship on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. This week on the podcast, I'm joined uh, once again by Dr. Sam Stevens, who's our Director of Training Center Certification. He also teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary as an instructional faculty in biblical counseling. And I love hanging out with Sam. And today we're going to continue our discussions during the month of May, Mental Health Awareness Month. And I want us to engage Sam off of some of the things we talked about last week. I want us to dive a little bit deeper as we talk about the implications, if you will, of the therapeutic relationship. And we're not trying to take a a hammer and smash the idea that the relationship itself is unimportant. No, absolutely. The relationship that you have is important, which is why we care about this idea so much, right? Is the Bible does describe how we're to engage one another for the purpose of mutual edification and growth in the things of God, in dealing with the brokenness that we all experience. And that's why it's such an important topic for us to address. And what I want us to do is is to take some of the ideas that we talked about last week, the, the clinical distancing that we talked about in therapeutic relationship that that is certainly biblically problematic, uh, the way we think about the role of the, the counselor himself or herself as the facilitator, the means of empowering, if you will, the client for the purpose of of change and, and how the therapeutic relationship really is some sort of like unlocking of a mysterious means to growth and, and healing and health and that sort of thing. But for us as Christians, it presents sort of a distinct dilemma. And a part of that dilemma or some of the challenges that we would face as Christians is those requirements in codes of ethics sort of bump up against not just the way in which we engage in relationship, but even what we think to be true from a from a perspective of a worldview that would be limited. If you are a licensed counselor and you're under these types of codes of ethics, it would be a limiting factor. There would be challenges. If you hold to a, a biblical worldview, you are convinced that the scripture is true and the way in which you engage in some problems in the counseling room. And so I want us to today, Sam, if we can, to talk through through that idea, therapeutic relationship and the implications of it or the challenges of it, specifically for those who are believers um, in the way in which they engage these types of relationships. And, and one of the particular areas I think it's good for us to talk about is um, what do we do in areas where there are, are moral conflicts, uh, moral conflicts uh, that differ in what we think as the counselor and maybe the values of the client. Because remember, last week we talked about the therapeutic relationship, that it's important that we as the the counselor respond to the client in their values and helping them to empower themselves on the basis of their values. Well, what happens when part of what's contributing to the counselee's brokenness is some sort of moral issue? The, The Christian counselor has a a massive dilemma, some major challenges. Are we going to obey the codes of ethics or the moral basis that we see from Scripture? So something you said in your intro really stuck out to me, and, and I think it's very important that we highlight it once again for our listeners that you'd mentioned, and we talked about this last week, but that counselors in these therapeutic relationships empower clients to change. Uh, but the question is, change into what? Uh, and we brought this up last week. What are we being conformed to? Are we actually even calling clients to change? I know of several 
different situations. Some of this is probably anecdotal, but it does represent, I think, how therapy generally works in that therapy focuses on client preferences, client values, client beliefs, these codes of ethics that we've been studying and using as just an example of how these professions work in these types of relationships, consistently hone in on this particular topic. And I think that's what, again, makes all this very problematic when we talk about moral issues, spiritual issues specifically. What are we actually doing in counseling? What is the role of the counselor? Are we just facilitators? Is our goal just to bring up things that our clients need to hear? So for example, uh, I want to pull uh, just some examples from this code of ethics that I've been looking at from the American Mental Health Counselors Association. This code of ethics was updated in 2020. From the counselor's perspective, they are responsible to empower clients, not necessarily to change, just very generally to empower clients, but they should not offend. They should not do anything that would push up against the client's values, their background, anything that would challenge or defeat, anything that would promise success for the client. And in fact, there was even a section about uh, calibrating effectiveness. What is effectiveness in counseling anyway? And this is very interesting that the, the counselor has to self-educate, self-correct any inherent bias against the client. This can interfere with the entire therapeutic process. So there's a lot to going in here. Uh, one thing that sticks out to me in particular about uh, you, you discussed moral issues very generally, but one thing that I know our counselors, our listeners probably deal with on a pretty regular basis our culture is infatuated with it right now, is sexuality, specifically sexual orientation and gender identity, which right. it feels like. Look, before we go there, I, yeah. I, and we're going to go there, because I think this is very illustrative of a part of the challenges and problems. Before we go there, part of what we're saying is we're certainly not saying that the, the client or the counselee's values are unimportant, okay? They are actually very important. In fact, they're, the, the values of the, the counselee are, are probably driving. If we believe a biblical view of anthropology, actually those values are motivating factors. Those things are, are driving. They're the lens by which people see their life. It's how they're interpreting the things that are going on. It's helping them to pursue or motivating them to pursue the things that they're pursuing. And we want as counselors to know the values of the people that we're engaging, of course, but a basis of biblical counseling is to listen for unbiblical thinking and to learn to correct it very simply with biblical truth. Why? Because we believe that some of those values that we inherently have based on our sinful disposition and our lust of pursuing what pleases the self biblically is some of the most detrimental pieces of who we are and what leads to some of the major problems that we experience. So it's not that we're dismissing as if the values are unimportant or that's it doesn't matter in the counseling room. No, absolutely it does. And we want to know those values, but the basis by which we judge those values, we have a backdrop. And that backdrop is the never changing, unalterable truth of God. Remember, this is the thing that will stand forever. Everything else will pass away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So we are to see, to judge, to think through, to discern the client's or the counselee's values. Um, they're important, but to, to judge those, to discern those from a certain perspective. And that's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it challenging for someone who is a Christian, who believes in biblical truth, 
to engage in these types of things according to those codes of ethics, because now we see the limitations, right? How do I engage in promoting the therapeutic relationship in order to condone the values of the client? Because we think that's what empowers them to toward health. Uh, man, that is it is a difficult thing to do, especially when the, the client himself or herself is valuing something uh, that is an unbiblical pursuit that is leading to detriment in their life. And I think that's key, though. No one's values, the counselors or the the clients or counselees should be the basis for what is true. And this is an inherent uh, thing that we're, we're, we're thinking about in biblical counseling. We as the counselors are in much as much need as the counselee to consistently, daily, uh, repent, turn back to the Lord. Uh, our thinking is futile thinking at times. It's, it's not, it's, sometimes it's skewed. Uh, yes, we've been made alive in Christ. We have a new mind. Uh, he's given us wisdom and knowledge through His Spirit, uh, but we're also fallen, and we need to go back. That's why we go back to the Word. The Word is the basis and standard for the content of our counseling, the direction of our counseling, the goal and method of our counseling. And, and so I'm, I'm glad you made that clarification. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think uh, so that's important. Now that we've established the idea that we're not just dismissing values out of hand, we, we need to nuance that there. That's important. But let's get back to the original topic of the issue of sexuality. This is probably the most forward way that we see limitations in state codes of ethics and that are written into the codes of the state statutes in various places that govern um, the relationship, the therapeutic relationship between counselor and client. And one of those areas is a very important moral issue. And listen, I just want us to use this. Sam and I are going to talk through this as a as an illustration of one type of moral issue. But listen, here's the fact of the matter. When, when you look at a system like the mental health system, it will not cease or stall at just making a declaration on one moral topic in what they think is most healthy. They can't do that. If they're going to be consistent with the secular nature of their own worldview, it will reach into other areas of morality where they will make very clear statements on what they believe to be good or evil, what they believe to be healthy or unhealthy. And this is just one area, this area of sexuality, where we see there, there are moral issues, ethical dilemmas, if you want to call it that, for especially the Christian who's trying to be faithful to the Scriptures, but then also who is wrestling with uh, the standard of a code of ethics. So let's let's walk into... Uh, this world of of sexuality here. Well, and, and brother, to, to be honest with you, this is a burden that our brothers and sisters who are trying to counsel in these uh, secular contexts have to bear that biblical counselors don't have to. Uh, when we counsel uh, under the authority of the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, we have complete freedom and should have complete freedom to counsel Christ, the gospel, the truth of the word, uh, without you know, any any issue is as, as clear as day. And our brothers and sisters that, that are, are striving to be, and I believe many of them definitely are, they're striving to be faithful to the Scriptures, but they're counseling under the dual role, if you will, of the church and the state are increasingly coming across their own moral quandaries, if you will. Uh, how do they remain faithful and counsel what the Scriptures clearly teach when everything from uh, state board of examiners that govern licensing in particular states to these larger professional accrediting bodies teach the direct opposite. So in the realm of sexuality in particular, this is directly from, again, this uh, AMHCA Code of Ethics from 2020, that regarding sexual orientation and gender identity, among other issues, we're, we're just highlighting these two specifically because they're hot topic issues right now and have been for a while, that counselors should not in any way discriminate against 
uh, those those people. Now, obviously, we would agree in, in you know how discrim- discrimination is a broadly used term. Uh, we should all obviously treat every counselee, every person with dignity, mm-hmm. respect, and and love. Uh, we we would clearly affirm that. <clears throat> but what's being said here is something very different. It's that we are not providing any type of moral assessment, any type of really general assessment or critique on our client's lifestyle, view of living, again, particular values as we've already discussed it. And for a Christian, that's very problematic. Um, Living in a uh, uh, same-sex lifestyle, uh, living uh, in, in a in a mindset that you're uh, a, a different sex than than what God uh, designed you and gave you as, is sinful, and the scriptures speak about that. We need to be able to address that with clarity, love, gentleness, winsomeness. But we have to speak to it. These codes of ethics, however, bar us from doing that. I want to read to you a statement out of uh, 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 this this organization that speaks to what they would call affirmative therapeutic intervention, this framework for addressing sexuality in particular. And what this means is that the therapist addresses the stress-inducing stigma experienced by sexual and gender minorities with interventions designed to, and this is the key, reduce that stress helping the client overcome negative attitudes about themselves. So this becomes now the thrust of the counsel, this affirmative intervention. We're not speaking to the fact that my client, my counselee, there's wrong thinking here. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's sinful living here. You know, there's there's sinful heart attitudes leading to behavior here. I can't go there. My concern is are there negative, stressful impacts on my client? That's my biggest concern. Mm-hmm. And this goes back again to the general idea of therapy. It's assuaging guilt. It's assuaging bad feelings. Uh, bad feelings equal bad living, just across the board. And so now this is my goal of counseling. See, do you see how easily it warps again the whole intention and purpose of counseling? Yeah, that's right. And and we very clearly have a view of sexuality um, where sexuality is good. Uh, the the relationship uh, monogamously between a man and a woman in covenant marriage is healthy and good, designed by God. Anything that's not an expression of that, the Bible describes as sexual immorality. And for us to limit the way that we describe that or what we think is most helpful for a person, again, doing that in gentleness and kindness and love, that becomes an issue for us who believe where we're compromising the truth. We are forced to decide which authority are we going to comply with. Now, I understand, and I, I want to give this caveat, Sam. I think it's important that people sort of understand historically why states may have reacted in this way, regulating, right? And listen, the church is to a large degree at fault here, okay? is <laughs> because uh, homosexuality, for example, was a part of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders from 1952 all the way to 1980. And uh, first of all, that's a, a poor framework. It's not to say that homosexuality is a quote-unquote abnormality. Um, that's a faulty description. And this is an example of the ways when when we define problems wrongly, we seek solutions wrongly. So the church, um, to a large degree, began to run after that and say, yes, it is an abnormality, and we're going to use conversion or reparative therapy to to, to aid this. And the goal became heterosexuality. And it makes some sort of statement as if homosexual lust and sin is uh, distinct and different from heterosexual lust and sin. And so reparative therapy just sim- simply um, uh, attempts to pursue a person to be heterosexual to some degree. And there were all kinds of, I would even consider some of them barbaric types of acts that were condemning 
that we're adding to the stress of young people in the types of therapies that were used in reparative or uh, conversion therapies. And I would completely dismiss those. And, and the reason is because they were not right-sizing the problem as it's described in Scripture. So they were not pursuing the right means biblically of restoration. When you don't call something the way the Bible calls it, like sin— now Jesus is not the hope for that, right? It's some sort of method that now gives me hope, which actually adds to the condemnation. Like and they, the, the person who's struggling with same-sex attraction feels um, like they can't do anything right because now they can't even overcome this issue. When, when the reality is the Scriptures make very clear that, that the pathway toward restoration is to seek forgiveness in relation to God uh, and to be at peace with Him, being justified by faith in Christ so that you can now be at peace with God. And so that led to the problem where conversion therapy, reparative therapy was being utilized under religious guise. And the church fell for this. And it was adding to the stress. It was condemning unnecessarily in different ways um, those who struggle with this sinful pattern of same-sex attraction, homosexuality, or whatever. And so the government responds this way. But now it puts us in a dilemma, um, especially those who are, who are licensed by the state, uh, for example, what we're talking about is not hypothetical. In the state of California, you, if you've listened to podcasts very long, you've heard me talk about this. Senate Bill 1172 makes very clear that if you're dealing with a minor who is same-sex attracted, even if the minor wants help and the parents want help, there is a limitation in your engagement in what's called sexual orientation change efforts. No matter on any moral basis, it it is forbidden for those who are under the state's responsibility. And so there is provision for non-licensed religious providers. So what does that do? For a believer, now I can't even engage in what I believe will be the most helpful way for this person to rid them of guilt, to rid them of shame, to rid them of stress and difficulty in what they're striving for and what they're striving against. And this is a part of the problem that the mental health system itself pursues in terms of therapeutic relationship is it always will spill over into defining its own morality, which is not complementary to the scriptures. It becomes contradictory in and of itself. And, and it puts those who are Christians in that world uh, in a very difficult place. So when we think about this issue of therapeutic relationship, I hope what you're seeing us describe is uh, the reasons that we're concerned, right? Is, is, is not some sort of basic desire that, you know, we want to protect a client. Man, that's healthy. That's good. Uh, but it's the means by which we, we do it, that it now becomes limiting in, um, in us having to compromise our moral beliefs, our, what we believe to be true from the Scripture, that, that are non-negotiable issues. And as that invades the church, we begin to uh, dilute the doctrine that we think is so important that gives life to people. And so, uh, this is our concern as we think about the system of mental health and one application of that in terms of the therapeutic relationship, which is um, sort of termed in a way that, that leads toward health. And we're saying, does it really? When we think about our conviction scripturally, it seems to be in competition. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, I want to take this just a brief moment and uh, remind you about the resources that we have. One on this particular topic that comes to mind is uh, the issue of homosexuality, and it's important. It's an important topic. Back in 2015, we did an annual conference on 
this topic of homosexuality, how to engage appropriately uh, those who are, are struggling with the sin of homosexuality and same-sex attraction. And there were a lot of speakers uh, who engaged in this topic. Um, Dr. Heath Lambert, who wrote Transforming Homosexuality, uh, along with Denny Burke, contributed to that conference. Rosaria Butterfield contributed, gave a phenomenal plenary session. And um, they will help you think deeply about it. And those resources are, are located along with many, many other resources that we have uh, on our website, biblicalcounseling.com.